0: Brothers and sisters, it is such a joy and honor to be here with you to proclaim the word to you today. I love this church for many reasons. Uh, One of the reasons is I have deep roots uh, with many of the folks here, Uh, including today. It was such a joy to see Hector Nunez leading the worship as somebody who was one of my former youth students, and uh, Ksenia up here singing with us. Uh, She was so hospitable when I was in Belarus on a mission trip years ago, and I'm so grateful for her and her sister being here as part of the church today. What a joy it is to come together. Every time we gather, it is a worthwhile time to proclaim the word, and today that's what we are here to do. Before we jump in, I want to also share with you that uh, yesterday I did travel up to New Hampshire, and I took some students to the youth camp where your pastor is currently, so I can verify he is actually there and not on a cruise in the Bahamas. He's actually where he says he was going to be. And uh, he needs your prayers this week. That is an exhausting time. I've had the great pleasure of being part of that camp for many years and unable to be there this year, but I'm thankful that instead I get to be here preaching for you. I would ask that you please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 54. As you're turning there, I'll share with you that there's probably no author that has impacted modern storytelling more than Charles Dickens. Uh, He's the man who is responsible for inventing the paperback and the cliffhanger and serialized storytelling, and if the stories are true, he did all of that in a single day. Many believe that his magnum opus is the book Great Expectations, and Great Expectations, if you've read it, is filled with characters who had great plans and phenomenal aspirations, only to see them dashed to bits. I feel like every single character in that book is like an over-the-top image of broken dreams. Just to provide one single example, consider a woman named Miss Havisham. As a young woman, Miss Havisham met a man and planned to be married. But the morning of the wedding, she was putting on her wedding dress and she received a letter from her fiancé informing her that not only was she not going to get married to him, he was also robbing her and that their entire relationship had been a scam. So what did she do? Ms. Havisham's response was to never change out of her wedding dress for the rest of her life. She stopped all of the clocks in her house at 8.40, which was the exact time she received the letter, and she never allowed anyone to remove the wedding cake from her table. In fact, she left it there until it was completely eaten away by ants and spiders many years later. She even adopted a little girl just so that she could raise her to hate men and break their hearts. Her expectations were eviscerated and her heart was forever broken. Today, we are going to see what the Lord has to teach us from Isaiah about Christian expectations. Just for context, let me remind you the setting of the book of Isaiah. This book of Isaiah was written by a man who was a prophet sent by God to the southern kingdom of Judah. His prophecies were given roughly 700 years before the birth of Christ. Isaiah prophesied in the days of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the first 39 chapters are most focused on judgment. Chapters 40 through 53 are primarily about the suffering servant, and 54 through 59, which is where we're going to be today, are mainly aimed at instructions for the thinking and living of the people of God. And then the final six chapters are focused on the rule of Jesus, the Messiah King. So I'd ask that now, as we are preparing our hearts, that you would once again join me in prayer to ask that the Lord would use this sermon to impact us today. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we come before you now a grateful people, a thankful people, a people who are rejoicing in our Redeemer. Lord, I thank you for the songs that we sang today that remind us of your hallowed name, I thank you that you are indeed worthy of praise and that today as we hear your word, I ask we would be reminded of your worthiness. God, I pray that also today that you would impact our hearts in such a way that you would cause us to live boldly for the kingdom of God, that we would not hold back in our testimony as we proclaim what Christ has done for us. I ask, Lord, that we would be lights in the darkness and that we would never allow anything to hinder that shine. We pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 54 is made up of three extended metaphors. First, we see a barren woman, and then a rejected wife, and finally a destroyed city. Each of these pictures is a desperate state of Israel. And moreover, these are a picture of the world that is lost without the Lord's salvation. Our approach today is going to be consider each one of these metaphors in turn. So let's first consider what he's talking about here when he speaks of a barren woman. If you have your Bibles open, please look starting at Isaiah 54, verse 1. He writes, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing. Cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Now, we've already arrived at a place that demands thoughtful consideration. To be barren means that a woman is unable to have children. It's likely that you've walked alongside somebody in this state. Maybe you've been close to somebody who's struggled with fertility. If so, you know the immense heartache that comes along with that. You know the disappointment that seems to come every single month. Maybe that was you who experienced that trial. Maybe it was your spouse who has battled infertility. Maybe it's a good friend who has gone through such frustration. I think of Hannah, Samuel's mother, who begged and pleaded for a child. If you remember back to Hannah when she was crying out, she was so emotionally impacted that the priest came along and thought that she was completely plastered. Now imagine that on top of all of this natural brokenheartedness, imagine adding a cultural understanding that they encountered in these days, that barrenness included with it the idea of a curse from God. So that every year that goes by, someone assumes there's not something wrong with you biologically. They would say there is something wrong spiritually. And they would consider you to be of less value than those, without, uh, those with children. Every side glance would be another blow at your heart. I want to say before moving forward, if there is anyone in the room who is struggling with that right now, that you have a church that loves you and cares for you and wants to come around you and pray with you and encourage your soul in these areas. And the Bible is not foreign to this challenge either, but there is a reason why he selects such a metaphor to use in this context. What you're going to see with all three of these metaphors today is that there is an extreme end of suffering and then a radical reversal to the opposite direction. This woman who was barren, who was experiencing such an emotional turmoil, he says to her, your responsibility now is to sing. She is commanded to rejoice. Why? Because the one who was barren is now expecting. She is promised Not just a child, but an immense family. Consider verses 2 through 5. It says, "...enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes." for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Pause for just a second. You live in one of the densest populated places in the world. You know what it's like to squeeze into a tight apartment. But there will come a time, depending on how many people you have in that home, that you will have to find a bigger place to live. There will come a time when you have to get another apartment or a home. There is a time when this place says you can't hold it any longer. What are the boundaries of this location that he's speaking about? The current location he's referencing is the nation of Judah, the promised people of God. And he says these boundaries are not going to hold you very long. There's coming a day when the people of God are not going to be held fast, they are going to spread across the entire planet. So he continues in verse 4 and says, Fear not, for you will. Will not be ashamed. Desolate woman, you're not going to be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Now here's the question. Who is the woman to whom Isaiah is speaking? Who is it that is literally going to spread across the entire earth? Well, thankfully, there are occasions when the New Testament will give us an interpretive key to tell us exactly what is being said in the Old Testament. And Paul gives us one such interpretive key in his letter to the Galatians. So I need you to listen really carefully to this part of the sermon in particular, because what I'm about to say is of extreme significance in terms of understanding the message of Isaiah in this chapter. Most prophecies in Isaiah have a near fulfillment and a distant fulfillment, and this passage certainly is about Israel as a nation. They had failed to produce spiritual offspring. Think about the commands that they had to proclaim the goodness of God amongst the nations, and yet they continually failed to do so. They did not take the good news to other places. However, There is also a distant fulfillment of this passage that more specifically relates to you and I. Please look with me to the screen and see how Paul helps us understand the fulfillment of this passage in Galatians chapter 4. Starting in verse 25, he says, Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. How many times have you read that sentence in your Bible? Now think of how many times have you stopped and said to yourself, what does that even mean? There's probably many of us who have just read past that too quickly and had no concept of what Paul is getting at. He was looking at Jerusalem in his day, in Paul's day, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he compares Jerusalem, that earthly city, with Hagar, the one who was cast out. And he speaks of that city as being in bondage with her children. In other words, those who are still following the system of Judaism, those who are still practicing old covenant religion, are not free. They are slaves. And then verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Now that is a weird thing to say. It is a strange thing to say that a city is your mother. But what city is it? It's clearly here not speaking of an earthly city, but a heavenly one. We who have followed Jesus Christ have been born from above. We are the offspring of the heavenly city. So what in the world does this have to do with Isaiah chapter 54? Well... It's because at this very point in Paul's argument, he is going to reach all the way back to Isaiah 54, and he is going to use Isaiah 54 to undergird his point. He says in Galatians 4.27, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So keep with me here. Let me help you connect some dots. What is Paul saying? He is saying that the fulfillment of Isaiah 54 is the expansion of the church. And this is really helpful to understand. These three metaphors that we are processing today from Isaiah 54, they are all pictures of how God is going to take his people The old covenant people of God, and he is going to bring the Gentiles, most of the people in this room, into that family, and he is going to give Gentiles a hope and a future. And moving forward throughout Isaiah, this heavenly city is going to usually be referred to as Zion or Mount Zion. So our text begins with this incredible call to someone who was barren telling her to sing. Why? Because there was once nothing, and now there is something And not just something, there is an abundance. And where there was once sorrow, there is now reason for joy. And we're actually going to swing back around to this at the end of the sermon, but I want to give you one application point right now. Now, one thing you should know about me is I listen to a lot of people's sermons. You you've heard Peter Nakotra in this pulpit, I listen to him every week. You've heard Matthew Shores, I listen to him every week. You've heard Ed Moore, I listen to him every week, and you've heard your pastor, Harry Fujiwara, and I listen to him every week, except this week, which has been a very busy week. And earlier, I heard someone mention that last week, which is the one sermon of his in the last few years I have not heard, that he mentioned that we are to sing. Well, congratulations, you're going to get a double dose because application one is to sing. Now, I'm encouraged by you. I'm encouraged that you were singing today, and I'm encouraged that the songs you were singing were gospel-centered songs, and I'm encouraged that you sang out and that I could hear your voices. But I want to encourage you to continue to sing and to sing loudly and to sing boldly and to sing in such a way that it does encourage one another and a way that does bless the Lord. Ray Ortland refers to Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1 as one of the most disobeyed commands in the Bible when he tells us to sing. The Lord is commanding that we sing for joy, not sing for any other reason, not sing because the leader says you have to, not sing because it's the song on the screen, not sing because it's Sunday, sing because you are a person who has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. A Christian who has refused to sing with gusto in their life, not just gathering, but in their life is a Christian who has forgotten the grace of God. It is not only laziness. It is not just inattentiveness. It is a kind of rebellion when we don't sing. He commands, sing with joy. Whether you feel like it or not, whether it's your favorite song or not, whether it's your style or not, whether your emotions are stirred or not, God commands that we do sing to him for what he has done. I like the way that John Calvin expresses this in a very simplistic way, which is odd for John Calvin. But he says very simply, the church is the place where the gospel is preached. The gospel is good news. Good news makes people happy. Happy people sing. Amen. That is good. Consider the good news of your salvation. Christian, consider where you are headed and where you are going now. Consider your desperate state before you met Jesus. And let that stir your heart to obey this command to sing for joy. The second metaphor that we find here in Isaiah chapter chapter 54 is a metaphor of a rejected wife. We find that in verses 6 through 10. Let me read it for you, and then I'll try to do my best to explain what's going on here. It says, For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you, For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. This passage is similar to the previous in a few ways, but also has a few notable differences. First, let's talk about the imagery here. How many of you have ever heard a husband say, well, I'm going to be sleeping on the couch tonight, That is not a biblical statement, first of all. If you are in that position, you can get some counseling. It would be helpful. Um, But I will say, that's also not how things worked in biblical times. That is a relatively new development in the history of husband-wife relationships. And the year 700 BC, that was his bed. And if there was a breach in the relationship, she was the one sleeping on the couch. And so when he says this, God is putting him in the place not of a a husband who is doing something wrong, but of a husband who has been wronged, a husband who has been mistreated by an unfaithful wife. And he says to her, because of your breach of our marriage, because of your infidelity, you're not welcome in our room any longer. You are now required to sleep elsewhere. So he removes her. And it's a picture of that breach in relationship. In this case, the Lord is using this imagery to tell Judah, you have harmed our relationship to such an extent that I'm going to hide my face from you. You're not going to look at me for a while. But he makes clear that this rejection is temporary. This declaration to Israel is a promise that they would not ultimately be destroyed. Remember, when they are taken into exile, they probably felt like God looked away from them forever. They probably felt like he had abandoned them, but he said, I will not let this be permanent. I will turn again to you in compassion. He did not abandon them to their own devices because of unfaithfulness. Even before the exile arrived, God was preparing the hearts of these people, reminding them he will not turn away from them forever. Like a loving husband who opens his arms back to his unfaithful wife, think Hosea, the Lord invites them to return and to be welcomed. The shocking reversal that we find here is that of the wife's relationship. It was broken, and now it's repaired. She was rejected. Now she is welcome. She was cast out, but now she's invited back in. God was angry, but now he shows nothing but pure compassion. And brothers and sisters, I have good news for you, because he says there's going to be a shift that will occur here. He says, consider this like the days of Noah. There's a covenant being made. Remember back in the day, I told Noah, I will never flood the earth again like I did here. Well, similarly, he says, I'm never going to turn my face away again. With my people, I will look to them and show mercy to them and have compassion on them. I will be pleased with them. I will love them without failure. I will never push them out again. When he sees you, Christian, he sees you with that kind of love. With the love that he has for his own son, he loves you. He will never reject you. Consider John 6, 37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. However, it is certainly possible for you to experience the feeling of distance from the Lord. This often happens due to our own sin. Perhaps you, like the people of Judah, are caught in a cycle of rebellion, and you are worshiping the idol of money or sex or entertainment or materialism. Uh, Maybe you're just bored with God and you're disinterested in his word. Maybe you're just lazy in prayer. Maybe you are, due to these things, feeling distant from God. Well, there's good news. According to Isaiah chapter 54, he has not moved, and his face has not turned away from you. Christian, The words of this passage are important. Consider verse 10 again. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Our second application of the day is to repent. If you're acting like unfaithful Judah, look to the Savior. See his love. See his compassion. The fear of the Lord means that you don't run away from him. It means that you run to him for forgiveness. If you really fear the Lord rightly, you would know you can't get away from him. You can't run far enough to escape him. The only option is to run to him and seek his mercy. I love that beautiful illustration of the mountain that he gives. Now, I realize that there's not any mountains here. Yesterday I was driving through New Hampshire and there are mountains all over the place and he says, just imagine one of them, those mountains just gone. Maybe you could imagine a skyscraper. You wake up the next morning, you look out your window, you have your coffee and you realize there was something there yesterday, it's gone now. What happened? That doesn't happen. You would notice something taking place. He says, no, just like that mountain will not disappear overnight, just like that skyscraper will not disappear overnight, my love will not disappear. It is completely dependable. Obviously, the love of God is infinitely compassionate and unfailing. The mountains might fall, but his love will not. So run to Jesus. So if you've got any sin in your life, anything that you're hiding at all, the worst thing you can do is continue hiding. Just repent. Be real with God and real with one another. Turn to him, be forgiven, and live. He's ready to greet you with arms of compassion. I Want to move now quickly to the third and final metaphor in this text, and that is the metaphor of a destroyed city. Listen to how Isaiah describes this city in the first line of this segment, verse eleven: "O afflicted one, storm tossed and not comforted." If you were here in the New York area during Sandy, you know what that looks like: storm tossed, not comforted, afflicted. This is a city that is experiencing or has experienced great devastation. And yet, as we see, God is going to decorate this city with lavish jewels of highest value. He continues, Behold, I will set your stones in antinomy and lay your foundation with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your walls of precious stones. I'm not going to go into a deep description of the Imagery that is being used here of these stones or how they are represented through scripture. Although if you wanted to do an investigation, there's some rich material to be found there. But just imagine these stones being used like common building materials. I don't know if you've ever played Bejeweled on your phone. Like imagine these really expensive, rich looking diamonds, jewels, crystals of all sorts and shapes and sizes. Decorated like they're worthless. Like they're just regular building materials. He says, that's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to decorate you as a city that is to be desired by all peoples. I'm going to cover your, your gates with shining, radiant, spectacular, splendorous stones. Well, what's the point here? Well, God's promise is that he is going to beautify his people. He is going to give them value. This illustration is a reminder that although we have no innate beauty in ourselves— We have no innate beauty because of our own efforts or our works. We are made beautiful by the intentional outpouring of God's extravagant love. Just like the prodigal son, who was not only welcomed back, but he was given the best robe. He was given the ring for his finger. You and I are welcomed, and we are given treasures far greater than any earthly wealth. Isaiah continues in verse 13 and says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Now this might have a familiar ring to you if you know your Old Testament well. Uh, This is the beginning of what it sounds like when he speaks of the new covenant that is being promised. If you read through the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you will find many references to this kind of transformation of the heart that is coming with the new covenant. He will make peace with them, and all of their offspring, not biological but spiritual, will have the same heart. Verse 15, If anyone stirs up strife, it's not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purposes. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is formed against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. The world is going to seek to produce weapons to undermine and to destroy the church they are constantly pursuing such weapons and they will not succeed i like the way that this is spoken of in the version i memorized no weapon formed against you shall prosper the question that might be asked here is well what about stephen was this talking about him cuz those weapons they used they were the most primitive weapons you can imagine they just picked up rocks and they threw them at Stephen. And it seemed like those weapons prospered. Well, what about Peter? He was killed on a cross. It's like they took two pieces of wood and stapled them together, and that was enough to kill him. It seems like those primitive forms of warfare prospered. What about Paul? They killed him with a sword. It's just a piece of metal on the end of a stick, and they used that to kill him. It seems like their weapons have prospered throughout history. That. Church has experienced persecution. Millions around the world have suffered and even died at the hand of brutal enemies. Have they prospered? Today, there are people who are gathering together around the planet who are worshiping the Lord on this Lord's Day who are fearful that there might be a grenade thrown through their window, or that they might be lined up against the wall and have their IDs checked, or that they might be put into a book with the government, or that they might have the, some of the members of their church disappeared. That is taking place in our world today. But the weapons of this world cannot harm the church, will not stop its growth, because the promises of God are infinite and eternal, and there is nothing that the finite, ephemeral enemies of the church can threaten. As it has often been said, you cannot threaten a Christian with eternity. The worst thing they can do is open the door to heaven for you. That's it. Application number three, have a fearless faith, Christian. Too many of us have, unfortunately, gone into hiding. We are happy to loudly express the truth in here, but then we're terrified to even breathe a mention of it out there. Why are we so quick to be shut down? Why don't we have a holy boldness to live loudly about our faith? Well, there's a few reasons. It's a combination of many factors. Let me just mention a couple of them today. It's first because we believe that we have things that are too valuable to lose. Our reputation, our dignity, our friends, our jobs, maybe even our very lives. And secondly, we don't believe that we have something valuable to gain. We undervalue both the immense treasure of shining brightly for Christ and we undervalue the unequaled delight of bringing others into the kingdom when you see the light bulb turn on, when you see someone who has been born again because of the conversation you are having at that very moment, when their soul is transformed, when they are given life by the Lord, that gives joy. That is worth every effort that we can give. Brothers and sisters, we have everything upside down if we are fearing. There is nothing to fear. You can openly stand firm because God is on your side and he is for you. Who can be against you? No weapon formed against you will prosper, he promises. So you have nothing to lose. The only possible option is victory. So be bold, brothers and sisters, and live your faith loudly. Let the beauty of the Gospels shine forth from your life every day. Earlier, I promised we would circle back around. I want to do that just for a moment. And I want to share with you An application that will hopefully bring all of these together. Uh, I think it's important that you know that most sermons that are preached are forgotten. Uh, In fact, I know this probably doesn't happen to your pastor, but most of my sermons are forgotten by everyone by Tuesday. In fact, there was one time that I preached at at a church, and then later that week, I think it was a Thursday night, I was at their youth group, and the youth minister said, who can remember any one of the three points the pastor made on Sunday? And guess how many students remembered? Zero. And you know what? I wasn't surprised at all. You know what did surprise me? I couldn't remember, and I preached the sermon just a few days before most of the things that we preach will be forgotten. Most of the conversations that you have about the gospel will be forgotten by you, but they might not be forgotten by anyone else. You need to know that there are times when the word does land on good soil and it is received. I like how Tim Challies says that sermons are like meals. He doesn't remember most of the ones that he's eaten, but he's glad he ate them because it caused him to continue to live and grow your pastor is never going to try to preach a forgettable sermon. I will never try to preach a forgettable sermon. But we understand when you forget the specific words that we preach. But I also want you to know that whenever you preach the word, it does not come back void. Whenever you preach the word, it finds the purpose for which God sent it. I also want you to know there are occasional times when you will speak, and it will impact somebody's life in ways that they will never forget. One thing that I find interesting, I've been preaching in pulpits, uh, whether part-time or full-time, for about 15 years now, and almost always the main things people have told me really impacted them are not things that I taught from a pulpit. They're from conversations that I had with them one-on-one. Brothers and sisters, you might not stand here, but you will stand before them, and you will have those conversations. I also want you to know that there are occasional sermons that do shake the world. Do you know the most impactful sermon ever preached in the English language? I think most people probably would quickly answer that question with Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards because of its role in the First Great Awakening, especially here in the Northeast of the United States. However, there is one sermon that I think had far greater impact on a global scale, and I want to borrow from that one today. In May of in 1792, rather, William Carey, the father of modern missions, preached a sermon that shook the world. It has come to be known as the Deathless Sermon. His text Isaiah chapter 54, verses 2 and 3. We already read those words this morning. I want you to hear them again. Enlarge the place of your tent, let the curtains of your inhabitants be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread among to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will go and will people the desolate cities. Remember what we learned earlier. This is about the expansion of the church on a global scale. William Carey was looking around and saying, hey, we've got a bunch of Christians here in England and in Europe, but there's an entire world out there that needs to hear the gospel, and we got to get up and go. And they did go. That sermon sparked a revolution in European and American churches to send missionaries across the face of the earth. And there are literally millions of people today who have heard the gospel and trusted in Christ. There are people worshiping in churches this morning because William Carey preached this sermon, and then he went. Those nations are now sending missionaries back to us here in the United States and in Europe. Most sermons are forgotten. In fact, William Carey's deathless sermon, one of the most impactful sermons in the history of the world, we only remember six words. There are only six words left that were ever written down. Here's his first point, expect great things. His second point, attempt great things. Six words remembered. Later on, this would be slightly expanded into the common missionary slogan, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. In fact, Charles Spurgeon probably the greatest preacher the English language has ever seen, loved this saying so much that he emblazoned it behind his pulpit so that when he was preaching, people would look up and they would see those words, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Christians, you should have great expectations. In Charles Dickens' novel that I mentioned earlier, everyone had great expectations and everybody was let down. Remember Miss Havisham? It seems that the moral of her story is Sorry, hon, don't get your hopes up. But brothers and sisters, we've been given a promise. We have been given many promises. And the promise here is that he has declared he is going to produce spiritual offspring. And that offspring is going to come from every nation and from every people. And God is going to spread his people across the globe. And you and I have been given the incredible privilege of taking a part in that unfolding plan of God. Perhaps another part of the reason that we fail to proclaim the gospel is that we have stopped believing that God is actually the one who changes hearts. Perhaps we have failed to stand on the promise that heaven will be filled with people from everywhere on this planet. Perhaps we have falsely believed that the only way somebody could be swayed or manipulated is by our message or by somehow becoming the perfect messenger ourselves or learning how to present the gospel message in a perfect manner. All of those things are good to do and strive for, but let's just remind ourselves of the simple reality of evangelism. Jesus saves. You and I do not save. Jesus saves. Your job is just to introduce people to the one who can save them. I know that sounds simple, but we just don't do it as we should. Just like Jesus told Paul, I have many people in this city. I believe that God has many people in this city, and it is our responsibility by his grace to have the immense privilege to carry that good news to them. Expect great things from God because he has promised great things. William Carey preached the deathless sermon. He also then went and lived it out. He got on a boat. He spent the rest of his life preaching the gospel in India. He expected great things from God, and therefore he was able to attempt great things for God. Now, you might be called up to preach in this pulpit someday as a young man of God here. You might be sent out of this church to the far-flung corners of the earth, and you might be sent to the next neighborhood over when this church plants a church someday. Wherever the Lord is calling you to be and to go, whether it is in this building, whether it is on a Sunday, whether it is in your job, in a cubicle, to the guy next to you, wherever the Lord sends you, whatever conversations he has called you to have, trust that he is going to use those to bring people into the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, we have been given great promises. Therefore, we can have great expectations. And therefore, we can go forward in faith on those promises and stand fearless before the world to attempt great things for God. Let's do that. Amen? Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we ask that this passage of Scripture would cause us to be committed to proclaiming the glories of Calvary to a world that is currently lost and dying and in bondage, and blind to the things of God. We pray, God, that you would use the message of the gospel that we teach, and that we proclaim, and that we preach, and that we discuss with our neighbors, and our co-workers, and our colleagues, and our friends, and with our family, so that you might enlarge your kingdom, that you might enlarge the tent. Cause us, Lord, to have a great faith in you that would allow us to overcome the fear that so often hinders us from proclaiming Christ to others. Lord, I do ask that this church would be filled to the brim with people who have come into the kingdom of God, and I pray that this church would also constantly be sending people out around the globe so that there might be many other messengers of Christ sent forth from this place. God, I pray for every individual here who knows you, that they would trust in the gracious love that you have and the power that you have so that we might live for you rightly. But God, I also pray for anyone in the room who doesn't know you. Perhaps there is someone here today who is outside of the family of God. We ask, God, if there is anyone in that place that they would have heard the good news of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the one who came to live and die for his people to bring them out of their sin. We pray, God, that they would trust in him and be saved. And Lord, I pray for the remainder of our week that you would allow us to live boldly for Christ. It's in his precious name that we pray, amen.